You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Good afternoon, Steve Morrison here. I'm thrilled to again be joined by Mike Osterholm, a close friend. He's the Regents Professor and Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, SIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. Mike, it's so great to see you, and thank you for making time to be with us today. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for your leadership through so many of these issues that uh, confront us day by day by day. So, Mike, I wanted to enlist you to help us in this series that we've begun a few weeks back in trying to get some of the leading experts on China, you among them, to comment and reflect on what's happened there with the rescinding of zero COVID and and where this puts us in the bigger picture. I know you and Zeke Emanuel have been very vocal at different points about the unsustainability of zero COVID. So now we're two months since President Xi threw off the zero COVID controls. What can you say in top line terms? What can you say about the consequences of what's followed in these past two months? Well, I think with all due respect, Steve, it was probably as what I would consider the biggest challenge that I've ever seen in terms of good governance. What I mean by that is is that the Chinese government had clear and compelling information at least a year ago that with Omicron in particular, they were not going to be able to control uh, the transmission of this virus through their otherwise typical lockdown approach. And so rather than try to gear up and provide more protection to the population through the use of better vaccines or even booster vaccine doses, they didn't do anything. And in fact, only one half of 1% of the Chinese population were vaccinated in the six months prior to removing the zero COVID policy approach. Now, I'm not sure that they had planned on removing it when they did. There are some reasons to believe that with the social unrest that occurred down, occurred with the lockdowns, that that had something to do with it. But the point was they could not have been more vulnerable. And they had did nothing to really gear up in terms of their medications they could provide. Their healthcare systems were far, far short of what they needed. And they were just totally unprepared, which to me, as a, an international government such as theirs, it's hard to believe that that could actually be the case. So it seems rather egregious, that level of neglect or negligence. How do you explain that? How do you explain a government that was so intent on controlling it pre-Omicron and so proud of its success in that regard and making the claims to its own population at how successful it had been in protecting its people, whereas in the United States, as we all know, well over a million dead. How do you explain that gap? Well, you know, there's a part of you that wants to run to the arrogance uh, position and say they were just arrogant and thought they, you know, had the hand over the virus. Another part of me, though, I think really reflects on what they did early on or with Wuhan in the first year. Remember, the virus has changed substantially since it first emerged. And if you look at that concept we call r not, how often someone who is infected will typically transmit to someone else, you know, we saw an r not of two to three in the early days of the pandemic and even into early days of alpha, you know, we were still at four and five. But what happened was, is that the, with the virus continuing to change and the piece that you mentioned earlier, Zico Manuel and I wrote a piece in the New York Times in January a year ago saying 
that while they could suppress the virus at these lower transmission rates, a less infectious virus, it was more like trying to stop a you know really severe forest fire. It could be done, work, but it could be done. This with Omicron now is like trying to stop the wind. And the best they could do is divert it, but not stop it. They didn't recognize that. They continued to take on this virus. It was the same virus that emerged in Wuhan back in you know 2019, 20. And by missing that, they thought, I think, that their methods would eventually prevail and they would be the great country that conquered COVID when nobody else could. Well, you saw what happened when they didn't understand that changing virus and the transmission. And we have data from several academic institutions in China right now that over the course of the past month, that virus probably had an R-naught of up to 16, which is remarkable. That is as infectious, if not more infectious, than measles. And there was no way that that was ever going to be stopped by a zero COVID policy. And you think they were shocked by that? Or do you think in the October, November time frame, they were seeing these accelerating outbreaks and proliferating across the country? Yeah, when you say they, I mean, it's like our government. Uh, there are surely very different places in government that may very well have understood it. I do think that the public health and infectious disease experts in China did get it. They didn't have to look very far. Just look at Hong Kong. Earlier this you know, past fall, Hong Kong got hit really hard. It, in fact, there was a period uh, in the fall where they actually had the highest reported mortality rates that any country had seen anywhere in the world with COVID. And so they saw what could happen there. And that should have been, if nothing else, a major alert that, no, somehow China and its certified states are, weren't going to be free of, of COVID. They weren't. And so I think that they should have known that. And I don't know why they didn't know it. I also think their lack of uh, awareness of just how well their vaccines were working or at least understanding what that meant also was a big issue because they didn't do that. And then finally, I mean, it was really amazing to us that a country that would enforce these tremendous lockdowns at the same time wouldn't mandate that 8 million people over age 80 get any vaccine at all. When they peeled off the zero COVID band-aid, 8 million individuals 80 years of older had no vaccine at all. Which is rather astonishing. Let's, let's talk for a moment about data. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of concern about trying to get access, get greater sharing on genomic sequencing data and on clinical data by different geographies and different points in time in order to understand what's happening, also in order to get ahead of the game should dangerous new variants come forward. And that's become a great sticking point between China and the West. It's become sort of a common talking point. It's something that Dr. Tedros has taken very seriously and tried to use the good offices of WHO to get a good, to try and restart some kind of dialogue that would be constructive dialogue. Tell our audience, why does this matter? And are we seeing any progress at all? Well, first of all, it does matter, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But I do want to say I think we are seeing progress. Uh, just uh, yesterday, George Gao, former head of the Chinese CDC, was the first author on a major publication on the actual variants in China up through December 20th. And it was a very helpful paper, and at least supporting the fact that there had been no new variants emerging out of China that were of particular concern. Uh, now, December 20th surely is not January 20th, and 
And one of the areas that we worry about with new variants are people who are chronically infected. So even if you pulled that, you know, terribly bloody Band-Aid off of zero COVID, uh, you know, that isn't even a month and a half uh, to December 20th. So we're going to still be watching for another month or two. Did new variants emerge with this incredible increase in cases? But I think they are sharing that information. And I am, for one, not as concerned that we're missing the variants coming out of there. We also are seeing a lot of sequencing of people who've traveled from China to other countries testing that. So at this point, I think the good news is, is that we don't have evidence that there's any new dangerous, more transmissible, uh, you know, more likely to evade immune protection or variants more likely to cause serious illness because of the major impact in China. Now, George Gao's article just reported today in the popular press here, he's arguing that we that the West is overreacting to the threat of a dangerous variant. Do you agree with that? Well, I can't say we're overreacting. I don't. I think that's too strong. I think that we have to look back to where we were in 2019-20. And if you look at the first emergence of the virus, then you looked at the emergence of Alpha, which occurred in late 2020, and then shortly thereafter, Beta and Gamma. They all occurred in countries that had very, very little immunity, such as Alpha first showing up in, in Europe, beta and gamma in South America and South Africa. And so there's a model there that says, well, you know, maybe this is a, a more likely to see a new variant emerge when the virus is up against no environmental or ecological pressure, meaning no one is already immune. Then along comes Delta from India and the same thing happened. And so now the pattern's looking like, well, this is where we need to worry about new variants is where we have very little previous immunity. But then Omicron showed up. And it occurred in largely South Africa, where, in fact, there was some substantial immunity because beta had already had a significant impact there. And so I don't think there is a model right now that says it's more likely to cause new emerging uh, variants where there is very little previous immunity or if there's a lot, meaning that from an ecological standpoint, and evolutionary pressure, you know, you, you think of a virus changing because otherwise it wouldn't survive, i.e. that there's that much more immunity, so therefore they have to become more immune evasive or more infectious. So I think either model right now doesn't predict what the future will be. So yes, we could see China having lots of cases and not be like Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and Delta, you know, and with Omicron being the way it we would think it might happen, but because there's not that immunity in China, it won't happen. So I don't think we know. You know, at this point, I just continue to remind myself day after day that this virus just keeps throwing 210 mile an hour curveballs at us every day. We just need to be prepared for that. Thank you. When do you foresee the current wave in China concluding, if it's going to conclude? And, you know, the government's hope is that Soon, there will be a normalization and their economy will fully reopen. What do you think of that? I mean, is it fair to assume we're going to see some kind of conclusion to this wave? Well, you know, uh, we used to talk about that in the United States when we had Alpha, Delta, and Omicron, big peaks, you know, mountain peaks. And then the case numbers would drop down precipitously into mountain valleys. And then that all changed in 2022 with Omicron. What happened was the cases went up, came down, but we instead of coming down to this valley level of numbers, it basically became a high plains plateau. 
you know, we have been averaging 380 to 550 deaths a day for almost 11 months. And it just hasn't changed. It goes up a little bit, goes down a little bit. You know, we see XBB 1.5 in the Northeast emerge a little bit, but not the rest of the country. And so if I just look at what's happening here, and I say to myself, what might happen in China? I think they could easily see, yes, this very large, large increase in cases, this big surge come down. And I think it has already done a lot of that. And then they're going to still be dealing with it, though. They won't be over it. The question is, will they be more like us, where they're just going to have this ongoing high plains plateau activity, but not enough to curtail, you know, basic public activities, private sector activities, et cetera? I don't know that. But I think that's probably what the whole world is up against right now. I mean, we're looking at what's happening in Scandinavia. We're seeing case numbers from a hospitalization standpoint, kind of moderate, but their number of deaths are, again, going way back up. What's that about? And so I think that that's the challenge. I mean, I just look at Japan recently. They defied what you might think was an explanation for what happened there in terms of they had a major surge in August and September with BA5, one of the sub-variants of Omicron, and then things quieted down. And then all of a sudden in December, it took off again. And their December, early January peak with BA5 again actually did record the highest mortality rates per population of any country in the world during the pandemic. You know, so there's enough, you know, kind of what I would call uh, unpredictable patterns occurring with this virus. I don't know what will happen with China. They will have a lot of additional immunity from those who have survived. How long that waning immunity will last, what it will mean, I don't know. But nobody in the world is done with this virus yet. It's just a matter of, you know, what the next uh, play will look like. What's your operating assumption in terms of the current mortality that's been experienced in China since the doors were thrown open? Yeah, it, well, it has been clearly, clearly underreported in a big way. You know, if you look at some of the groups that have been trying to get a better handle on this, uh, you know, it's estimated that anywhere from 23,000 to 30,000 deaths a day have occurred since that zero COVID policy was abandoned. And I can tell you that from our own uh, on-the-ground observations, people from the private sector who live in China, uh, reporters that we have close contacts with, and even some of our academic partners would tell you that's probably fairly uh, accurate, the, that number. If you look at a very interesting piece with the New York Times last weekend, they actually laid out uh, almost like we as epidemiologists, we do what we call an epicurve, plotting cases by time. And they actually plotted out over time, over the last six weeks, notable, very well notable uh, Chinese uh, officials, academic, medical, scientific, who have died uh, just since December. And it was remarkable if you look at the big peak of deaths that occurred in the first two weeks of January. So I think that they really have suffered uh, substantially in terms of the number of deaths. We surely knew it. I know of one reporter who I had talked to whose own family was confronted with this when her grandfather died, and it took him five days to finally get an ambulance to come to get take his body to the crematorium. And so they've surely had a massive number of deaths, which probably far, far exceed what the world had seen as such. Now, I'll just shift gears a bit. The quagmire over COVID origins, the standoff that we've seen around did the original virus, the ancestral virus in Wuhan emerged through 
zoonotic spillover or did it did it occur through a lab accident or some deliberate release that standoff persists it lingers but we're seeing new life come into this in terms of the congressional investigations that are beginning to unfold. Uh, what do you think this is going to mean in the coming months? Well, let me preface my comments by saying, first of all, I'm an epidemiologist. I'm not a viral geneticist. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a clinician. So my second point, though, is that I've been very concerned about the issue of gain-of-function work and what that might mean. Having been on the National Science Advisory Board from 2005 to 2013, and being one of those who really opposed some of the gain-of-function work around influenza viruses without better laboratory protection. So I come in at this issue with that, you might say, bias. But now having said that, I do not see any evidence that this is a man-made virus, that this, in fact, surely uh, could reflect a spillover uh, from a wild animal, and notably bats. If you look at could it have been in the lab and escaped from the lab, I don't think we can ever answer that question. You know, whether it came in in an animal to the markets of Wuhan or whether it came to the laboratory, someone got accidentally infected there and took it out, I don't think we'll ever know. And no amount of investigation is going to change that. And what I mean by that is we're never going to get any more information from the Chinese. Imagine the following scenario. A new virus emerges in the Caribbean. Very dangerous. Very dangerous virus. Hadn't seen it before. Where you might be the first place you'd pick that virus up is in Atlanta, just because it is the transportation hub for all the Caribbean, and it's where we have the laboratory facilities to actually identify it. Well, if that virus, which actually did originate in an island in the Caribbean, first gets documented in Atlanta, you know and I know that everyone is going to accuse the CDC of somehow leaking that virus out. It was their fault. And China and Russia are both going to demand to have access to our laboratories to look at that, to understand what happened. And we're going to say, pound sand. We're not going to let you in our laboratories. And so I think that in many ways, the same conditions apply to China. They're not going to allow us uh, to come in and have a full understanding of what happened there, uh, whether it was man-made or, in, I mean, it was a laboratory-related error or it actually just showed up in the animals. So I think we can investigate this till we're blue in the face, and I just don't think we're going to ever come up with any more answers than we have now. So this is likely to remain a frozen conflict in science, really, and a frozen conflict in politics. In other words, it's not going away. It's now become embedded in, in a different narrative in Congress around, you know, alleging that NIH and others acted incompetently or acted without full transparency and the like. And that narrative is, is very much out there. You're suggesting it's not likely to move anywhere, but it's not going to go away either. It's not. You know, we actually have a, uh, an existing challenge in that regard that most people aren't aware of. Back in 1974, 75, and early 76, the Russian government was actually working on new influenza vaccines, live attenuated vaccines on its eastern border with China. And they were working with H1N1, one that basically reflected more back to the 1918 virus. And when we watched that happen, we saw actually, as you're well aware, the virus emerge out of China and basically was on the Russian-China border. 
and take over the world quickly, which then resulted in the big concern about what was happening with influenza. And when you go back and look at the virus, it really was, in fact, the same one that had been around before it was extinguished in, in 1968 uh, with H2N2. And the virus we suddenly saw was one that surely had been in a freezer for the better part of all that time from, from the 1957 to the 1976 time period. And it had to have come from those Russian labs working with it in Eastern uh, Russia and China. Uh, now, no one ever really ever came back and confirmed that to be the case, but we suspect that was the case. So there actually is reason to think that this kind of thing could happen. The challenge is here, we also have a ready explanation that the fact that we've seen it with SARS, we've even seen it with MERS, that there could have been an animal population in the markets of Wuhan that would have made this happen. So this is why I say, you know, pick your choice and flip a coin, and that's about as close as you're going to get to knowing the truth. Let's close with a consideration around the U.S.-China relationship. We know it's very fragile. It's very fraught. It's in an intensely confrontational phase right now. We've witnessed this latest spy balloon episode over the weekend, which knocked out Secretary Blinken's plans to visit Beijing, at least for the time being. There had been discussions going back to President Xi and President Biden's discussions in Bali at the G20 summit back in November about resetting the relationship, establishing a new floor, and putting a special focus on constructive dialogues in health and climate change. So my question is, is there any space for an informed dialogue between these two governments, U.S. and China, on preparing for the next pandemic? What are your thoughts there? Well, you know, part of the challenge I have is, you know, now having been in this business for 48 years, I always compare today to yesterday or many yesterdays ago and try to understand where are we at. And, of course, when I think back in those 1970 time periods, uh, whether you're looking at China or you're looking at Russia, you know, those were dangerous times. Uh, you know, I had the opportunity to actually be in Novosibirsk uh, in the Siberia and uh, laboratories of the Russian army back when it was being disassembled and realized just what potential they had for production of weapons, biologic weapons in this case. And of course, we know that the Chinese have had equally uh, major science pushes in the area of microbes. And what makes me really very concerned is, is that if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have said we were much more on a course of all three of us coming together, Russia, China, and the United States, to actually address in a very straightforward and hopefully mutually beneficial way on how to deal with gain of function, microbes in general. Well, that's all gone now. I mean, I feel like we're back in the 1970s, kind of Cold War kind of time. I'm surely not a policy person that understands where this policy might be going. But right now, I think that uh, we're in a tough shape uh, with trying to cooperate and collaborate around the issues of pandemics, the issues of a potential intentional use of biologic agents as we've been since I've been in the business. And that's really a very, very sad thought. Thank you. I want to close by asking you a question about the highly successful podcast series that you have pioneered since early in this pandemic, 
the Osterholm update COVID-19, which I'm a great fan of, and is really a premier case of success and ingenuity. And you've created a really, really strong, large, loyal listenership. Tell us a bit about this experience, because you've invested so much of yourself into it, along with your staff, and made such a huge commitment to it. Tell me about how you feel about it now. Yeah. Well, thank you, Steve, for those very, very kind words. First of all, I have to uh, acknowledge the fact that as an old man, when uh, I was asked to be on Joe Rogan's podcast back in the very earliest days of the pandemic, I said to my young graduate students, you know, who, who's Joe Rogan? What's this podcast thing? And uh, they all looked at me as if I was an ancient dinosaur. Well, I did do Joe Rogan early in the days of it. And within the next several days, there was 10 and a half million downloads of that podcast. And I was just floored. And so the point came up was, you know, there's people who really are looking for this kind of information. And so uh, we decided to start a podcast from Sid Rapp uh, with the team. And over time, we learned that People have really several needs during this pandemic. One is just straight talk, just what you know and don't know. And I think that, you know, if there's anything I'm hopefully will be remembered for is that I was willing to acknowledge on many occasions, I don't know. And as I've said before, over and over again, trying to chip the five inches of mud off my crystal ball every morning is a challenge. But I think that's been the reality. The second thing is that people also just wanted to feel that connection, that people cared and that there was something about the pandemic that could actually be good as opposed to just horrible. And so, you know, we've tried to connect kind of a podcast family. And you're right, we've been very successful in engaging that. And we've learned a lot. So, you know, it's kind of a mixture of, uh, of the science uh, distilled down in the way that I can understand it. And then just the fact that we try to reach to people and ask, ask and answer the kind of questions that are not just about the science but just about life in the time of a pandemic. You've been successful at proving that a podcast can be a medium through which your listeners actually actively communicate with you, correct? They do. We, we have a tremendous amount of feedback on the podcast, emails, you know, it, it letters. Uh, it's a remarkable. And, uh, you know, and some of it is wonderfully helpful critique. Some of it is just people just saying thank you. There was one where I talked about the challenges of families around holidays and how, particularly if you had a vulnerable family member, you know, don't feel as if somehow you are the outlier or that you're the bad person if you want to protect that person who might become seriously ill from other family members who say, hell with it, I don't care, I'm not going to get tested, I'm not going to worry about it. And I got a, uh, an email from a mother who had that very thing happen to her with her husband and her daughter getting married. And uh, it was at the height of transmission back in 2021. And her daughter and her soon-to-be husband refused to have any precautions taken at all at the wedding. And so they went with their N95s on, in which they were the only ones there, and they were shunned for it. And then they left afterwards because it was an indoor event. And she went for a whole year feeling extremely guilty that she had done something wrong. And when she heard the podcast, it was like somehow a total relief, you know, a weight taken off her shoulders that no, she did do the right thing. As hard as that was, you know, we all had to make our choices. And I can only imagine that if her loved one who was with her had gotten COVID and died, imagine what that would have been like. 
And so I think that's the kind of thing that we didn't intend to ever address, but we now can't help it because it's just part of everyday pandemic world. So do you think now that this is going to become a permanent tool for SIDRAP, that you've proven something to yourself that you didn't know over the course of this pandemic, and, and so this is going to become a permanent feature? Well, I, I hope somehow it does. You know, I will have to say the older I get, the more vulnerable I am to learning. And, you know, I've learned a lot doing this podcast about uh, understanding science, understanding how you share that science with people. So, you know, I hope to keep it going. You know, I'm 70 years old and, uh, you know, some people are wondering when I'm just going to retire. But then I take uh, the page out from my good friend, Tony Fauci, and say, well, heck, I got at least 10 more years or more left. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we'll see. As long as we can help people, that's what we're all about. That's all we ever wanted to do. And if we can continue to do that, we will. Well, Mike, thank you so much. We always end by just asking what gives you the greatest hope. I mean, I know on your show, you have What's the Place of Peace and Beauty. I'm asking you, what's your place of hope and optimism? You know, I hope that we just learn from this experience what it is we must do to be better prepared for the next one. You know, people don't want to hear this, but this is not the big one. This is not. The big one is a coronavirus that has the transmission potential of SARS-CoV-2 and has the mortality associated with it as we would see with SARS or MERS of 15 to 35%. Or an influenza pandemic like 1918 that killed 100 million people when the U.S. population is one-third the size it is now. And those could be potentially the big ones. And so this was not, by any means, anything other than a tragedy, what we've seen over the past three years. But this is not as bad as it could get. And so I hope we learn from this one. What can we do to be better prepared for the future? And I know you have been very important in trying to help uh, right the ship of the CDC and, you know, coming up with what we need to do to have a better CDC prepared for the future. And I, I just want us to be able to learn from these things. And this would give me hope if we could uh, do that, because we're going to be in the battle with the uh, microbes. You know, as our, our dear friend, late Josh Lutterberg once said, you know, the microbes are here before us, they're here while we're here, and they're going to be here long after we're gone. That's a great point to end on. Thank you so much. It's great to see you. It's Thank been a you. terrific conversation. Great to see you. Thank you. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Marla Hiller. In the first quarter of 2023, we will be transitioning Coronavirus Crisis Update into a new format and title that will encompass and carry forward that work on the COVID-19 pandemic, along with some other related work pertaining to HIV AIDS and other areas of priority focus. Stay tuned for that. That work will be carried forward under the banner of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. Thank you. <laughs>